I'm going to start at verse 36 of John chapter 12, and we'll go to verse 41 and get into our study. It says in verse 36, the Lord speaking, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Father, once more, we just lift up, Lord, just your word. And as we see how the Apostle John has taken the Old Testament and combined it with the New Testament and the things that were going on in the Lord's day, that, Father, we see the truth spring forth from that and the reality and how you move in the lives of men and women. Father, you desire to move the very same way today even in the men and women who are in this room. And so, Father, I pray through the teaching of your word that, Holy Spirit, you would empower it, Father, and, Lord, you would do your work in our lives for the purpose of working through them and into the lives, Lord, of those to who you bring us to. So, Father, we just thank you for this evening. Pray once again that you would speak to us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. What we have in chapter 12, especially at the end, we're going to look at three main points in the next few weeks, but we have the Lord's last public sermon before the cross. The, last, the rest is basically going to be leadership training and then post-cross training, but this is his last public sermon. In writing about this last public sermon, the Apostle John is stressing three main points. We'll be looking at these three main points, one a night for the next three weeks. First, in verse 36 through 41, we see the hardness of an unbelieving heart, how they can still refuse the gospel after all that they have seen, after all that they have heard. Secondly, in verses 42 and 43, there will be those who believe but will not come forward, those closet Christians and undercover believers, those who have made a commitment to Christ but not really committed to Christ. And then in verses 44 through 50, the relationship between the Son and the Father, and in that we will see the relationship between dark and light, the relationship between salvation and judgment, and the relationship between believing and receiving. And so the context, the context in our scriptures tonight continues to be the key to understand what the Lord is speaking of when he's addressing the hardness of of an unbelieving heart. Obviously, the hardened hearts are the Jews, those who should have known better. And really, to check our spirit, really, who these are, is they're the religious community. They're the ones who should know better, the ones who have had access to the Word of God. And in these things, we should examine ourselves because we're the ones in the religious community. We're the ones who have access to the Word of God. We're the ones who have absolutely no excuse. So we've seen earlier in past studies that the Greeks, in verse 20, the Greeks are tiring of man's wisdom and their mythical gods that can do absolutely nothing for them. They've heard of this man Jesus, this new sensation. If you recall, we studied it a little bit earlier in the beginning of the chapter. There was the triumphal entry of Christ. And so they probably heard of this man and the, and the things that he's been doing and the miracles that he's working. And in their mind, here's finally somebody that's able to work practically in the lives of, of, of people. 
and we have to be of that mindset, we can never forget that. That's why we have our Thursday night prayer. That's why we have the prayer request prayer chain. And I, I see the hearts of people, especially, didn't happen this week, but usually what happens is about Thursday afternoon, I'll get a flood of requests because they're wanting them prayed for from the pulpit, which I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. But we have this ability to have whatever it is that is going in our lives prayed for throughout the whole week. And those people who are very dedicated to prayer, my request, I have the potential of it being prayed for every single day. Not just here from the pulpit, but every day and even multiplied in different places because we know, because we understand God intervenes in the lives of men and women. God still does this today. And so the Greeks had this inkling of it because, again, their gods never could do anything for them. But now, here's this Messiah. Here's this one who's just come into town. And they tell Philip and Andrew, we wish to see Jesus. Now Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and tell him this, and he so much tells them that they will. But they will truly see me as they need to see me. They'll see me on the cross. See, if you haven't seen Jesus on the cross, then you haven't seen Jesus as your Savior. The only way you can properly see Jesus Christ is in the light of the cross. And then we saw in verse 27, again, setting the context, we saw the Lord's troubled soul. What is it that troubles the soul of the Lord? Well, we saw that it was going to be he as he brings sin upon himself. For the very first time from eternity past, the Lord is going to personally deal with sin. This death on the cross, it is to be a spiritual death. There's no doubt about it. He did physically die upon the cross, but the spiritual death is the one that really matters. And what is spiritual death? It's when a person takes sin or receives sin upon themselves. In essence, they have died. And in essence, that's why we had that darkness from three, uh, noon till 3 o'clock when Christ was upon the cross. That was that picture of that death as he has taken sin upon himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was the separation. And again, I defined it as we met last time a couple of weeks ago, one of the greatest pictures of what hell would be like, that separation from God in outer darkness as Christ took this upon himself well, he understood that it was necessary, but it is also something that troubled his soul. In verses 32 and 33, we saw the necessity of the cross. Verse 32, Jesus said, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples unto myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. And so it's God's picture of his love for all of mankind. It's the display as Christ is lifted up in a very public manner that all would see the great love that God has for mankind in the crucifixion of Christ, that he loved the world to such a degree that he sent his son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. In verse 34, we saw how the Jews misunderstood Jesus in his ministry because they misunderstood the scriptures. It, people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up or the Son of Man must be crucified? Who is this Son of Man? Well, the scriptures tell us very surely. If you look at Psalm 22, we're not going to turn there. Psalm 22 speaks in detail of his crucifixion. But also, on the other hand, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Now, when you see the term Son of Man a lot of times the answers can be found. The answer can be found here in Daniel chapter 7. 
It says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Now, how can Jesus be like the Son of Man? Well, he's God. He's fully God, but he's also fully human. He's the Son of Man, but he's not completely the Son of Man. He's like the Son of Man. Because, again, fully God, yet fully man. One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And so the problem that the Jews had was their misconception or misunderstanding of really what Messiah's purpose was. Again, they were looking for somebody to reestablish, that's what they were looking for in the triumphal entry, Israel back to national prominence. But Jesus didn't come for Israel, he came for the world. And as he came for the world, he came for all of those who were in the world. He came for you and I. So it wasn't just the people of that day, but people throughout all of the annuals of time. And as he came, well, he had to, in order for us to have eternal life, not just a temporary kingdom, but an eternal kingdom, the price had to be paid for sin. And so they never got that. Why did they never get that? They never considered themselves to be sinners. We're Jews. We're Israelites. We're of Father Abraham. And so it was because of their, their traditions and what they had caused religious, religion to be, this self-righteous attitude, that they couldn't see Messiah even when he was standing right before him. Then in verses 35 through 36, Jesus' exhortation that time is of the essence in relation to salvation. Verse 35, then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And so you have darkness. We were talking about this with the children just before service. What is darkness? Darkness is the absolute absence of light. There, you can't find darkness. Now, I can make light, but I can't make darkness. The only way I can cause it to be dark is to take light out of it. So if I wanted this, this room to be dark, we'd go through, we'd turn off all the lights. We wouldn't add darkness. That's just impossible. And so he has the world, and it's dark. It's as dark as dark can be. But now the light has entered in. And, and Jesus is telling him, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light. So I've done it before. I've been in here, and for some reason I came in the back and I was wanting to go to the front. I didn't want to turn the lights on because then I'd have to go back around and turn them off. And it's such a long way to walk from here to go all the way back there to turn the lights off. And so I, I know I could do it, and walking in the dark, and you're walking, and then you finally make your way, and you feel along the wall, and you get to the steps, and you're going like that to find the steps, and then you can't remember how many steps there really are. And you get to the top one, and you go like that. And it's dark. Then you're wondering, where did those worship people put the stuff on the stage? They said something in the way, and it's a dangerous journey. Well, you need to walk, and this is a point that the... Serious. This is the point the Lord's making. That light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. As the light has entered in, now to become a son of the light, 
is to be a light after Christ leaves. That's what we are to be. We are to go out there and allow our lights to shine. And so his presence is then, he's the light, and then throughout the church age, it's the church that shows of his presence, of his light and darkness even today. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So, now Jesus' last public words before the cross. Today, will be the Apostle John's biblical view on what he has seen. Because again, everything that Jesus did, it had to match up with past prophecies. If there was a past prophecy concerning what was going on, you should be able to go to the Old Testament and look it up and to be able to validate it, you know, validate what, what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. And so we're going to see the Apostle John bring elements of Isaiah chapter 6 and show us how not only Christ fulfilled these things, but how these things were unfortunately fulfilled even in nation Israel as they uh, rejected their Messiah. And so again, we have the hardness of an unbelieving heart. Verse 36, the last part, these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Why? Because he still had a few more days before the cross. Verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. They should have seen the signs, and the signs should have directed them into the truth of who Christ is. We live a life that is filled with so many signs. Even biblically speaking, we live in the time of the signs. It seems like the signs that we see are the signs that are lining up with end-time theology that we see in Matthew 24 and 25. What were we told to do while Jesus was gone? We were told, well, we're to be busy, we're to make disciples, but we're also to watch. What are we to watch for? We're to watch for the signs. And as we see the evilness, the darkness, if you will, going throughout the world, we see that, well, the times, they seem to be right because of the signs. Because you look at the world, and I'm 58. You've got a lot of plus and minuses from that here. But if you think back, things didn't seem to be so, so sinful, so, so dark as they are today. Well, look at the United States. We'll just take a portion of the world, but you can extrapolate this throughout the whole world. You look at the United States. It wasn't as always dark as it is today. Why? Because it had an element of light that entered into the darkness. And what I mean by that is it had biblical morality. Now, maybe the United States wasn't the... Now, it was founded on Christian principles, but not necessarily a Christian nation. And what I mean by that is not everybody was saved. But there was the light of biblical morals. But what has happened? We've taken that light out of our country. And what has happened? Our country's become darker and darker and darker. You just can't really deny that. Biblically speaking, we see that that's happening and so we have to look at that, and we do extrapolate that across the world. The world, definitely absent of biblical morals, and the world is a very, very, very dark place. Matter of fact, I would imagine if you could just kind of overlook the whole thing, you would see bright spots of the church here and there, and you would see that, wow, as there's this absolute black background, 
look how those little dots really stand out. You know, just as the stars are in the sky, the darker it is, the better you can see the stars. The darker it is, the better you should see the church. But we should be watching. We should be watching the signs. And so signs were, society is filled with signs. I remember in the 60s, there was a big thing against billboard pollution. As I remember, we'd drive down Imperial Boulevard, and there would be billboard after billboard. Remember the old liquor store signs? They had flashing and a arrow going towards, you know, and they just kind of all these, you know, neon and all of this stuff. Finally, the city said enough, and now you got to go through a huge process just to get any kind of a sign. The signs we deal with today, they've got the pop-up windows or Facebook ads that pop up and all of these things. There's always constantly dealing with signs. But when it comes to signs, especially biblical signs, nothing can be so important, yet so insignificant. See, the problem with the Jews is they place too much significance upon the signs. The signs are important because God told us to watch for them. But, well, if you would invite me over for dinner, maybe I've never been to your house, I would need to follow the signs, the signs or the directions that you had given me. To accurately interpret them, I must follow them and to follow them to the letter would be essential for me to arrive at my final destination, or at least the proper destination. But once I arrive at the proper destination at your house, the signs are no longer important. See, what's important is who they point to. And here, they've been filled in the Old Testament with signs that pointed to Christ, and now the Christ is there. They've had enough of the signs. You don't need any more signs. There he is. But what are they still seeking? They're still seeking more and more signs. They're more caught up in the signs than, than the Lord himself. I mean, I could come to your house and sit there and talk to you about, man, you, going down that street was an amazing experience. Yeah, and I almost missed the left-hand turn. And you say, you know what? You're here. Don't worry about that anymore because you're missing out on fellowship and the food and just the coming together. Well, they missed out on all of that with the Lord behind them because they were so caught up and looking for, for that which just simply pointed to him. If you remember the signs that John wrote about, he wrote about the signs for a specific purpose. I say remember because we pointed it out before, but it's in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. It says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now I'd like to know what those signs were, but it's not important because it does not achieve John's purpose. And so, signs, we'll set these signs aside, because these were points that Christ was making for discipleship, or whatever they were, but John's point is, is to show that Jesus Christ is God, that he is the Son of God. And so he kept the signs, he chose to include in his gospel the signs that point towards Jesus Christ as being the Son of God. And so the priority, the priority is always Jesus Christ, it's not the miracles, it's not the signs, nor is it the wonder, the wonders. Even prophecy, I see people get so caught up in prophecy that they kind of squeeze Jesus out of the prophecy. And, you know, the current events and all of this, see, all the current events that are going on and all the evilness that goes on, all this, Christ reigns over all. See, if you start to look at all of this stuff and become consumed by all of this stuff, then you're missing Jesus Christ. And crises are peace during times such as these. I had somebody call me once and said, I go to another Calvary Chapel, 
this was around, this was just after 911. He says, they're always talking about Muslims this and Muslims this. And they were just upset about this great threat that's out there. And I said, don't worry about it. Christ has overcome it all. You know, and what had happened was this person, and I don't know the church or anything like that, but this person, somewhere along the line, had lost focus. They were seeing a Muslim around every corner instead of Christ seated upon the throne. And we can do the same thing. You know, we just had the election and you know, with the Hillary thing and the Trump thing and all of that, and we can never lose track of Jesus Christ is seated upon the throne. And so the Jews... The Jews were sign seekers. What were the signs that they were wanting to see? They were always wanting to see signs that were on the magnitude of what had occurred back in Exodus. They were looking for the plagues of Egypt, the cloud and the pillar of fire, water from a rock and the division of the seas. They were looking for this miraculous thing. In essence, they were basically looking for God's face to peer out of the clouds and to give them direction. But we know that the just shall live by faith. Matter of fact, it's like Jesus just got fed up with the whole thing. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 and 4, it says, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and tested him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And that's what he's talking about, something of that magnitude. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And we know the sign of the prophet Jonah is being three days in the belly of that great fish, the Lord being three days in the grave. And then he left them and departed. You can just so easily look at the sky and determine what the weather is going to be. Those signs are pointing to what it's going to be the next day. And his point is, the, the, the Old Testament was very clear. It was very plain. And through those signs, you should be able to recognize who I was. But you want a miraculous sign? Well, the only sign you'll be given is the sign of Jonah. Because Christ is going to die. He's going to be in the grave for three days. And then he's going to rise again to new life. That's what really altered the, the heart of the apostles and really all the disciples when they saw the resurrected Lord. All these men who forsook him at the cross later on would give their lives for him. Why? Because they saw the resurrected Lord. They understood that if this body dies, they have a new body. They have a new body that God, well, God's going to raise this body and give it a new body, that spiritual body, for all of eternity. Because of that, they didn't hold their lives dear but they were willing to give all for the one who gave all to them. Verses 37 through 40, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, and that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. And so the question that you've got to ask, I'm sure people would ask you if you were in this section of Scripture, why would God cause anyone to not believe? Now what happens if people aren't going to believe? They're going to go to hell. 
And so why would God cause anybody to not believe and effectively send them to hell? Well, actually, they are choosing for God to cause them to not believe. See, the issue here is it's all about the calluses. When I was an electrician, I would work with my hands every single day. I still have calluses right here on my finger from twisting wire nuts. You twist a wire nut and twist them all day long and develop a callus there, and I'd have callus in my hands and even on my fingertips. Joanne probably has those from playing guitar. Well, the problem with that is sometimes you pick up something hot and you don't really realize it because of the callus and how thick the callus is until after a while it's like, whoa, that, that's hot, and then you realize you burnt your fingers. Well, these people, through their unbelief and their refusal to see God as he's standing before him, their hearts become callous. And so I guess the best illustration we saw in John 9, here's a guy who's blind, and the guy can see. And they're upset because of that now. And they're calling Jesus a sinner. He caused this blind guy to see, or this crippled man. He caused this crippled man to be able to walk. There was no doubt that this guy was blind. There was no doubt in their minds that this guy was crippled. That was never part of the argument. Part of the argument is he's caused these guys to do these things, and this has never happened before. But their hearts were so calloused in unbelief that they couldn't see these signs for what they were and where they were pointing to. And they just became more and more callous that they couldn't see truth. They just wanted to see sign after sign after sign for the sake of seeing signs. There comes a time after rejecting the gospel so many times that you become callous to it. You just don't feel the conviction anymore. How many times have you thought or you've heard somebody or had somebody tell you when you're sharing with them or when somebody was sharing with you before you were saved, oh no, here it comes again. I, I, when I do, usually it's when I do a funeral, I'll, I'll see somebody. When I go up there, I'll usually say, I'm going to speak for 10 minutes and I'm going to tell you what the Bible has to say about life and death. And I can just see it in some people's, oh great, here it comes again. And it's then that they just kind of turn off. The callous kind of kicks in. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 22 says, because although they knew God, everybody knows that there is a God. Everybody knows that there is a God because it says even with creation, they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They didn't acknowledge him for who he is nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Why? To remove the source of light from entering into mankind. The light didn't enter in. The light had the opportunity to enter in. How does the light enter in? It enters in through belief because they're mechanism of belief was calloused over there no longer was that opportunity they caused it to be calloused if you rub your fingers on sandpaper and you rub them every day on sand they're going to build up calluses if you reject the gospel time after time after time after time you're going to become callous to that and that's what we have to deal with as we go outside of these walls when we talk about sharing our faith or you go over to Uncle Harry's house this Christmas, and Uncle Harry, can I say the prayer for dinner? Or Uncle Harry, can I say the Christmas story? And Uncle Harry rolls his eyes, here we go again. And, and that's what we have to penetrate. We have to penetrate that calloused heart. 
the calloused heart so that it would be open to believe. Now, it says here that the Lord is going to cause them at some point to go over some sort of threshold, but we never know where that is going to be, or we never know when that is going to be. But we do see this darkness in our society. We see it even today. But again, the book of Romans, and why don't you go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. And then a little bit we'll go over to Romans chapter 9. And again, this is all in relationship to this calloused heart. This, as they desire this callous heart, at some point the Lord gives them over to that. Now again, we've got a picture of our society, world situation, but even in the United States of America, even in California, verse 24 of Romans chapter 1, therefore, because, verses 18 through 23, they refuse to acknowledge God, and even though they are without excuse, <clears throat> therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And you could say, when was this written? Was it like a month ago? No, it was 2,000 years ago. But man, that perfectly describes our society today. They've been given over to debased mind. You see the element of homosexuality and how homosexuality has become such an issue even though it's a minority of the people. But God basically says, listen, if you want to do this, then go ahead and do it. And it's God has done that. What, what do we see here? I've got to find it again. Even, verse 28, even though they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to that debased mind. And now we're starting to see some weird things that come from a debased mind. We can't describe a man and a woman anymore. We can't describe what marriage is anymore. And it's even going worse than that with, with children and, and just all of this garbage. Well, what you see here is a seared conscience, a debased mind, or a calloused heart. They've refused God to such a degree that, if you will, none of God is getting through, or there's that total absence of light, or that total absence of morality. This is exactly what happened with Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 10, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him. Because of Pharaoh's hardened heart, God made an example of him. And so, it says, leading up to this point, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so finally, Pharaoh's heart was hardened to such a degree that God allowed it to go all the way. And now, he's using this man as an example of those who are contrary to God. So because of Pharaoh's hardened heart, God made him an example. Now turn over to Romans chapter 9, verse 17. Now keeping in mind the context, Romans chapter 9, the context is Gentile salvation. In John chapter 12, the context is Gentile salvation. 
you've got these Jews that are so hardened of heart by self-righteousness and what the desire or their desire of what they want to see that no longer can they see truth right before them. And so concerning this concept, Romans chapter 9, verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, old man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed, uh, formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if, I underline that in my Bible, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, God knows those who are going to receive them and who's not, but he still endures those who are not going to receive him. He still strives, even with the unbeliever, even though God, who exists in eternity, knows that that unbeliever is not going to receive him. Why? Because it all gets thrown into the mix that we study in Scripture. There will be those who are apart from Christ. There will be those who are condemned. There will be those who have a, con uh, a calloused heart. And that's what we're seeing back in John chapter 12. We're seeing these people, now some of them may have gotten saved somewhere down the line, but there are those who are standing there who have a calloused heart. And as they see this calloused heart, we see how far away they are from God. Verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared for beforehand for glory. Well, just look at the, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees, the people standing and confronting Christ, and the Apostle Paul. You've got these men who have callous hearts, and Paul could be in the same boat. But at some point, at some point, Paul opened his heart to the truth. And the truth came in, and that darkness was overcome by the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. The apostle Paul was a vessel of mercy. And so Paul can understand this concept, bringing Pharaoh in, equating it with the self-righteous community, understanding that he used to be part of that, but realizing the light came into his life that I was a vessel of destruction, but now I've become a vessel of mercy. You were a vessel of destruction. You didn't get callous to such a degree that God hardened your heart, although you did have a heart of heart, a heart of a hard heart. <laughs> a hard heart. But, but God did that, that, that wonderful work. Now, then you start bringing the what-ifs in, and you can't really go with the what-ifs. Well, what if I didn't do that? Would I have gotten saved? And, you know, people go in just ridiculous places trying to reason all this out. You just need to receive the truthfulness of the text here. And so the Jews, back in John chapter 12, the Jews heard of the signs. They saw the signs. They knew of what Jesus had done but they wanted to see more and greater ones. So you got this man who was crippled from birth, and he walks now. Well, I want to see something better. You got a guy who was blind from birth. Well, I want to see something better. Well, we got Lazarus. He was dead, and now he's been brought back to life. I want to see something better. Do you see the degree to which their hearts are, are callous? The Greeks, they heard of the signs that Jesus did. And what did they want to see? They wanted to see Jesus. And again, in there 
back in 20, uh, in John chapter 12. Now there were certain Greeks amongst those who came up to worship at the feast. When they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And you have the essence of the book of Acts. The Jews rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as their Savior, and then the salvation message going to the Greeks. Now, why would it go to the Greeks? Just as I pointed out earlier. They're sick and tired of these gods who could do, these false gods that could do nothing for them. They look to human intellect. We have all of these philosophers, but all of their philosophies, is what we're studying on Sunday night, Ecclesiastes, their, their philosophies, they all led to the edge of despair. I, I came to this place of trying to make sense of life, just as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, I had it all, but I realized it did absolutely all, did nothing for me. And, and so these Greeks, they, they've heard about this God of Israel, and that's probably why they're there during this time. They're probably God-fears who've come to celebrate the Passover, but now they're hearing about this Jesus, sir. We wish to see Jesus. We wish to examine him. And if the Jews had only had that mindset, they'd only had that open mind to examine the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we ask out there, that you give us this opportunity with the gospel because we know that light always overcomes darkness. Never will it not. How can this happen with the Jews, with all of their histories, the signs in the scripture? If it can happen with Adam, it can happen with anybody. Remember Adam? He walked in fellowship with God, and he still sinned. Sin causes a heart to harden. And then there's another concept, kind of sad. When you speak the gospel, sometimes, especially when you're speaking a gospel to somebody who's a hardened heart, maybe you won't even know it, but what you're doing is you're validating judgment in their life too. That when they stand before the Lord, their mouth will be stopped because they had an opportunity with the gospel. God used you to speak the gospel to them knowing that they were going to receive judgment. And this just validates the judgment because God is just. Verse 41, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So the question needs to be asked, and we'll close with this. What did Isaiah really see? We have a saying, what you see is what you get, but this is rarely the case with people as well as God, is what you see is what they're willing to reveal. So what did God reveal to Isaiah? Turn over to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll, we'll close from there. That, that means we've still got about another 10 minutes, but nonetheless. Now, in our, our study of Isaiah, we saw that Isaiah, not only was he as a prophet, as we all know, he was also the court historian. The court historian would probably have a pretty close relationship with the king. He'd probably be educated, eloquent, and again, he'd have this relationship with the king that would insulate himself from a lot of the things that would be going around. Isaiah was 25 years old around this time, and the only king he'd ever really known is King Uzziah, and he's flourished under this king, and again, this king probably has watched over him, and this king even recognized Isaiah's ministry. But then all of a sudden, it was in this one year, it was in the year that King Uzziah died, what happens when King Uzziah died? What happens when your Uzziah dies? What happens when that thing that you depend upon for security, for protection, for confidence is taken away? Because the majority of us, if not all of us, are going to experience that. Maybe it was the year of a bankruptcy. 
Make it, maybe it was the year that you lost your job. Maybe it was in the year that you lost your health. Maybe there was a debt. Maybe, well, it was just that year. Well, it was in the year that Uzziah, Isaiah's security protector and confidence, that's in the year that he died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. It was then, you see, it was clouded. I, I didn't see God through Uzziah. Now, not that Uzziah was a bad guy. Uzziah was actually one of the good kings. Not perfect, but he was one of the good kings. But Isaiah, he had this dependency upon Uzziah that he ought not to have had. And so he was kind of cocky with Uzziah there seated upon the throne, being his historian and being in good grace with him. But it was then when Uzziah was taken away that Isaiah saw God. And what did he see? He saw the Lord. I saw the Lord seated, sitting on a throne. I saw the God who is. And really what he's seeing here is, he's seeing the sovereignty of God. Now, let me read through this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and it was really the Lord who was seated upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The reason the Lord's glory, the train of his robe, filled the temple, because there would be no room for any other glory in there. It was all filled with God's. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. These would be some sort of angels that were there. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord, Whom shall I send and whom shall go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Now here's where we see John's quote. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So Isaiah was there. And this was a prophecy that was given of the hard-heartedness of Israel. But what Isaiah is getting a picture of, the prophet, the one who speaks for God, is the reality of God. Now, what did Isaiah see? He saw the totality of God. We're told in Acts 28, verses 50, uh, 25 through 27, So when they did not agree amongst themselves, they departed after Paul said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah, the prophet of our fathers. So Paul is ministering to Jews who are in Rome at this time, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through the prophet Isaiah. And so, who was there when Isaiah was standing before the throne of God? Well, we're told here in the inspired word of God in Acts chapter 28, the Holy Spirit. It says here in Acts, so the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through the prophet Isaiah, those things. But also, back in John chapter 12, 
verse 41, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Well, who's the he and the him? Well, in context, the he and the him is he and him who was mentioned previously. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. So really, what did Isaiah see when he was there in the throne room of God? Well, I'll just present to you my interpretation of it. In the glory, he saw the Father. In the person, he saw Jesus Christ. And in the voice, we see the Holy Spirit. He saw the totality of God in that place. And I believe that's why it's mentioned elsewhere in the Scriptures to the degree that it is, so that we would understand when we experience it looking in the Gospel with the self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees, but we would also understand these things when we see the calloused heart of whoever it is, of the Uncle Harry's and next-door neighbors or whoever else it might be who are out there. The Jews, they wanted to see a sign, and they got none. The Greeks wanted to see Jesus, and in four days, they're going to see him. They're going to see a Savior, high and lifted up. Father, once again, we just thank you that you have displayed us, displayed yourself to us, the totality of who you are. And Lord, I pray, Father, that we would be receptive of you. Lord, may we not be people looking for signs and wonders. And yes, prophecies are important. There's no doubt about it. But I pray, Father, that we do not lose you in the midst of the prophecies that are out there. And so, Father, we just thank you for your word and how you reveal yourself, Jesus Christ, as him crucified through your word. And Lord, as it was sufficient back then, it continues to be sufficient today in order to penetrate the hard-heartedness of mankind. And so, Father, we just thank you, Lord, that we have become vessels of mercy. We were vessels that were headed for destruction, but by your grace, you have brought us into your glorious home. And because of that, Father, we thank you and we praise you. Father, as we again prepare to go out there, though, I pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit just show us the reality of the darkness out there, but also the necessity, Lord, that we would bring the light, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand, please? All right, ladies. Woman's tea. If you're not signed up and you're coming, you better get signed up tonight or you can't come. Yeah, we'll let you in no matter what. But nonetheless, uh, the tea is next Tuesday night. Uh, starts at six. The teaching doesn't, or the worship doesn't start until seven, I believe. It's kind of a time of fellowship and all. But again, if you're going to come, we need to get you signed up because we need to know how many people there. I believe we've got about seventy people so far. I'm thinking we're going to end up probably with ninety or close to hundred or whatever. So, in order to be good stewards with God's resources, we need to get people signed up. God bless you guys.